It was that rare event in Washington, an actual resignation based on principle. 31 years ago this month, William Weld was assistant attorney general in charge of the Justice Department's criminal division. But then, in a move that shocked the Capitol, Weld, along with five Justice Department colleagues, including the deputy attorney general, quit in protest. The then attorney general, Edwin Meese, was embroiled in controversy, under investigation by a special prosecutor over allegations of corruption. Weld and his colleagues were convinced the swirl of allegations around Meese were tarnishing the reputation of the department. These are truly resignations of conscience. They simply couldn't work for Ed Meese any longer, one department official told the New York Times. Weld's resignation was only one of a series of pivotal events in a lengthy career that has included serving on the staff of the House Impeachment Committee that investigated Richard Nixon, serving as U.S. attorney in Boston, where he prosecuted mobsters and big financial institutions, and being elected twice in the 1990s as governor of Massachusetts. He got some brief attention three years ago when he bolted the Republican Party to run for vice president on the Libertarian Party ticket. But now he could get a lot more attention. He's recently announced he set up an exploratory committee to test the waters for a primary challenge to Donald Trump, who he recently said is, quote, simply too unstable to carry out the duties of the highest executive office. How serious is Weld? Does he have a chance? And how, as a one-time top prosecutor, does he assess the president's legal troubles? We'll talk to him about that and lots more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, it is so interesting to look back at that moment at the end of the Reagan administration when people at the Justice Department actually quit on an issue of conscience and principle. Yeah, I started covering justice just a few years after that. And I remember that that event kind of hung over the department. It was this kind of dramatic thing. And what it said was that, you know, if you politicize the Justice Department or if you acted as attorney general in a way that, you know, without integrity, there were consequences for that. People would actually take action. Man, have times changed. <laughs> yeah. You know, because there was always this question in the first couple of years of the Trump administration, all the crazy things that were happening at justice and this president attacking the Justice Department and Sessions and Rod. Meanwhile, Rod Rosenstein, you know. Right. He didn't quit, no, right? He, he, he would he would have had reasons to quit in an act of conscience. He got used by the president to fire Comey. He had serious questions about the president's stability based on uh, all the reports we've gotten in actually even raising the issue of the 25th Amendment. And he watched the president attack the special counsel, Robert Mueller, who he, Rosenstein, selected and was over 
overseeing, and yet Rod just, uh, you know, continued into, uh, uh, you know, I guess he's stepping down in the next few days, but man, uh, it would be interesting to hear his with a whimper, not with a bang. Yeah, <laughs> but here's I mean, perspective on on what Bill Weld did. Yeah, and that's years why ago. I'm I'm really excited uh, to interview Weld uh, on this episode of the of the show. He is such an interesting character. And look, I mean, right now, does he have any chance? Do we think he has any chance of of defeating uh, Donald Trump <laughs> in his primary challenge? Probably not. Certainly a real kind of long shot. Right. But he's going to be a really interesting candidate out there. And it's funny. I was thinking that maybe within a few weeks, Trump. Trump won't have Robert Mueller to contend with because his report will be out and Mueller will shut down. But he may have uh, Bill Weld out there, a former right. head of the criminal division, U.S. attorney, a, a, a mob guy, busting, right. corruption busting, gunslinging prosecutor. How to make uh, to make criminal cases, uh, RICO cases, to put pieces of evidence together to build the grounds for charging somebody with a crime. So it'll be uh, uh, really interesting to hear how he assesses Trump's exactly. legal vulnerability. And the other thing I'd say about Weld is I, I've always thought that whoever challenges Donald Trump to be successful either on the Democratic side or in a primary challenge, you've got to be in some ways a kind of a larger-than-life character to deal with Donald Trump's oversized personality. And I think that is Bill Weld. I mean, a lot of people may remember uh, this really amazing moment when uh, he was governor of Massachusetts. He was touting his environmental record, having cleaned up the Charles River, and he was giving a press conference right. Uh, right there on the Charles River. And at the end of it, what did he do in his like Brooks Brothers suit? He just turned around and he dove into the river. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, my favorite uh, anecdote from those days is, you know, Weld is a true Brahmin. Uh, his, Blue blood. Uh, one of his uh, ancestors was uh, among the earliest students, class of 1650 at Harvard, and then 18 more Welds went to Harvard. Two buildings are named for the family. When the then Massachusetts Senate president, Billy Bulger, teased him about his all-American heritage and wealth, pointing out that his ancestors had come over on the Mayflower, Weld corrected him. Actually, they weren't on the Mayflower. They sent the servants over first to get the cottage ready, (laughs) which I thought was a pretty good line. And on that note, why don't we bring in uh, Bill Weld? Excellent. We are now joined by Governor Bill Weld, who recently launched his exploratory bid for president. Governor, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be here. So when you announced, you called the president a schoolyard bully, and you said Washington Republicans were exhibiting all the symptoms of Stockholm Syndrome. How do you break somebody of Stockholm Syndrome? Stockholm Syndrome, just for the record, is when you are captured by somebody or some group and you identify with your captor. You kind of give up right? and you throw in with them. And, you know, I get a little bit that sense of uh, Washington these days that that's what has happened in uh, some of the halls of Congress. To what do you attribute that? I don't know. I find it uh, hard to follow. I mean, I I have long said that the two-party system in Washington has uh, gotten inefficient, to put it mildly, because all they really care about is getting reelected, and that means demonizing the other party so you can motivate your base to give you a lot of money so you will have the funds to pay for ads so you can get reelected. It's kind of a vicious circle. I guess, Governor, you're talking about 
Republicans in Washington, elected officials. But all the latest polls show that 90 percent of Republicans around the country support Donald Trump. Are they experiencing Stockholm you, you Syndrome know, what also? I, what I say to that is that six months is forever in politics, as we all know, which means two years is four times forever. And don't tell me nothing's going to change between now and Election Day of 2020. Matter of fact, it could come sooner rather than later. And plus, they haven't had a choice, right? right. Because there's no one. And, and now they might. Yeah. I mean, the reason I spoke up and raised my hand is we know a lot more about Donald J. Trump and uh, what his style of governing and the substance of his decisions in government than we did two years ago. You know, I wouldn't have raised my hand and say we have to throw this guy out the day after he was elected. He won the election after all. But now we got a track record, and I think it leaves a great deal to be desired, both domestically and internationally. Well, what disturbs you the most about the president's conduct? I think his meanness. I mean, he says he's a counterpuncher baloney. That's vindictiveness, and it's often directed at little people. Mm-hmm. Instincts, very bad. And, you know, it's no secret that uh, his stock and trade is divisiveness and trying to stir up the pot and pitch groups against each other. And as long as everyone's teeth are an edge, he's happy. He thinks that's good for his politics. And that's Steve Bannon and Breitbart politics. And it's something new in the United States. And it's nasty. But, you know, you said something else about it. Let me read this quote. Our president is simply too unstable to carry out the duties of the highest executive office in the land. You know, the Constitution and the 25th Amendment contemplates a scenario which if the president is unstable and can't carry out his official, his or her official duties, they can be removed. Would you support the cabinet and vice president invoking the 25th Amendment? No, I, I don't think we're quite there, but apparently there were some such conversations very early <laughs> in the administration, which got the president's full attention when he learned but of it. But what do you the mean? Justice but, Department, right. to wit, yes. You know, maybe there are some people out there who think you wouldn't have to elaborate on this, but what do you mean by unstable? Well, well I remember saying this in 2016. I said the president's too unstable to lead uh, the United States. You know, if uh, one of our children, age 10, acted that way at the dinner table, we would require him to leave the dinner table. And that's a 10-year-old child. So it's just corking off in all directions constantly, taking everything personally, making himself the center of everything that has to be considered. You know, they call it narcissism. There's a form of narcissism called malignant narcissism, where an additional wrinkle is you're not happy unless other people are losing. And that has characterized the president's business career. Every time he went bankrupt in Atlantic City, first of all, he would tell the banks, unless you give me a lot more money than I had before I declare bankruptcy, I'm walking and you'll lose everything. You'll lose all your collateral. So the banks went along and gave him a lot of money. But my current point is he made certain that the little people didn't get paid, the vendors who had worked for him there. Maybe five, 10 cents on the dollar, maybe for great big ones who sued him, maybe 30 cents on the dollar. But nobody got paid except him. So we're not quite at 25th Amendment territory in your view. What about impeachment? Well, I mean, I think I've said often that the president is way beyond anything uh, Richard Nixon ever did in terms of uh, fomenting disrespect for the rule of law, trying to keep the Justice Department from doing its constitutional duty of, uh, you know, doing justice without fear or favor. That's kind of the motto of the Justice Department on the walls of the Justice Department building in Washington at 10th and Constitution. It says a government of laws and not of men. That obviously means nothing to the current president of the United States, and that, that's a 
sad state of affairs, beyond uh, sad, actually. All right. Well, you can speak with some authority on this because you were on the staff of the uh, House Judiciary Committee during Richard Nixon's impeachment. In fact, you were hired to research the legal grounds for impeachment, right? Well, yeah. Right. No, that's right. I, okay. I worked on that memo for like five months. So are you saying that the president's conduct that's already been made public that we know about right now is grounds to impeach him? Well, it, impeachment would lie, put it that way. But it's a political remedy. And, you know, I understand that uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, doesn't want to go there if she feels that there are never going to be the votes in the Senate to uh, convict. So, you know, she's fast forwarding to the 2020 election. And I've I've come around to that that view. You think that's the right judgment? I, I do. I do. I, I, you know, I knew so much about the grounds for impeachment that months ago I was thinking, oh, boy, that's what's coming. But I now think because of the essentially political nature of the impeachment process that discretion may be uh, the better part of valor. I just want to drill down on that for a second. You talk about the political nature of the impeachment process because you could have been making an argument about just a tactical argument. They don't have the votes in the Senate. But are you saying that even if the Democrats had the votes in the Senate, that because the process would be perceived as being so political, that impeachment shouldn't be if an the option? Dem if the Democrats had the votes in the Senate, this thing would go through like suet through a goose. Are you kidding me? Right. And, and in that, <laughs> under that scenario, would you be in favor of uh, pursuing impeachment? I know you're not a Democrat. Well, but... it's, it's not my job, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think all the facts are out there, yeah. but I do think that uh, the facts that are public put uh, this president well beyond uh, what uh, President Nixon did. And you know, if memory serves, there were three articles of impeachment that were voted through well by the, beyond what by the House. Richard Nixon did. That's my view. Again, yeah. Give me, give me the particulars. Yeah. In terms of the that, rule of law. Yeah. yeah. Give me the particulars. Well, where to start? You know, expressing disrespect for the rule of law, telling the head of the FBI that his job was to be loyal to the president, that everyone had to be a respecter of persons, and in particular one person, and that's how the world works. Well, that's not how the world works when mm -hmm. the constitutional scheme is being carried out. And that's the ultimate grounds for impeachment or removal of an officer is interference uh, with the constitutional scheme. And this president has done almost nothing except that, uh, hollowing out the State Department, hollowing out the Justice Department, and uh, telling the Justice Department that its job, essentially, is to be loyal to him and protect his political skirts. So if that's you, not their job, if you had your old job of being on the staff of the Judiciary Committee and you were drafting articles, uh, how would they read? How many articles would there be? And well, what would I, you... I was about to say that the article mm -hmm. that got the most votes in the Nixon impeachment in, in the House Judiciary Committee was Article mm -hmm. Two called agency abuse, and it was misuse of the FBI and the CIA by trying to direct them not to pursue the Watergate inquiry on the ground that it involved national security. Right. That was the offense. Now, right. we've seen more than that from this president. It doesn't have the additional characteristic of being in technicolor and lurid detail in terms of the tapes that Mr. Nixon kept. Uh, but yeah. essentially... Which uh, was helpful to making the case. In fact, you know, uh, that's I'm, what pushed it over. It was the yeah, tapes. I'm, I'm not yeah. sure if those tapes hadn't existed, that things yeah. would have uh, panned out the way right. they did. But, you know, since the tapes were there... It was possible to conclude that Mr. Nixon had been lying to the American people on television 
for months and months and months, saying, I am not a crook, when he had directed Mr. Haldeman and Mr. Ehrlichman to go do this and try and get the investigation mm-hmm. quashed on the ground that it was trenching on national security. That was nothing but a lie. I do think it's fair to say that the president is a loose man with the truth, this president. <laughs> you think? And uh, we've seen a lot of stuff, a daily basis, uh, come out of the president's mouth that uh, is not true. And one of the things that galls me is the president is the worst possible role model for our children and grandchildren. They're going to grow up thinking this is how the occupant of the highest office in the land acts. That's got to be terrible for kids. Mm -hmm. You were a U.S. attorney. You were in the Justice Department. You were head of the criminal division of the Justice Department. Right. And you resigned as a matter of conscience. So it was reported at the time because the then attorney general, Ed Meese, was under investigation at the time. Um, Talk to us about that. And do you see any uh, is that a role model for people who are in the Justice Department today, your resignation? The same issue was at play, namely politicization of the Justice Department. And I spent five years as a U.S. attorney and two years as head of the criminal division in Maine Justice trying to keep the politics out of law enforcement. And I'd made a big change in the U.S. attorney's office in Boston. When I came in, I didn't ask anybody whether they were a Republican or a Democrat. And, uh, you know, that was a change. uh, The office had been, with some exceptions, largely a patronage office, before then, political spoils, and both parties, Republicans as well as Democrats, although there were a lot more Democrats in power in that state. So that was, you know, an article of faith for me, and and I let nothing interfere with that. And when I get to Washington and I see the department being politicized, and it was, our morning meeting around the AG's table was as much about politics as it was about law enforcement. How so? Uh, there was just a lot of discussion. Uh, the, there were a lot of movement conservatives around that table, and there were some naive uh, libertarian-oriented people like me, <laughs> but I was not alone. There was yeah. maybe 30 percent were libertarians and uh, small government people, and we would joke about that and then go out and get the boss's work done. And when I say the mm-hmm. boss, I mean Ronald Reagan. Well, let me ask you, because the Justice Department, there's the investigative and prosecutorial mission, but there's also a policy mission as well. So when you're talking about policy, you know, there is a place for politics in discussions of policy. Are you saying that at the time, politics actually infected the law enforcement mission, the investigations and, and prosecutions as well? Well, it was more the tone that was set from the top. And let me say, by the way, Ed Meese personally is one of the greatest guys I've ever met. If little things mean a lot, Ed Meese is a saint, and and that is important. But I think, you know, what befell Ed was he had been counselor of the president in the West Wing Mm -hmm. before he came over to be AG, and I think he had a hard time ever taking off his White House hat. And his White House hat meant his loyalty to Ronald Reagan But that's not supposed to be top of mind if you're attorney general of the United States. Some other job, perhaps. You know, I suggested three years ago that perhaps Mr. Trump could get some other job, the laundry business, maybe, any <laughs> any job, uh, but not president of the United States. In fact, before we went on the show, you, were t- you told us a little vignette about loyalty, because I think you were called up to Congress to testify about your resignation. So... Uh, tell that story. Yeah. No, Deputy Attorney General Arnie Burns and I and four other people resigned, and we were asked to come up and testify before Senate Judiciary. 
about uh, why we resigned, and uh, Arnie said his piece, that the department was like Alice in Wonderland, up was down and south was north, because it was just immobilized by the attorney general's difficulties, and Ed had been on the receiving end of a couple of uh, special prosecutor investigations. And I said, well, uh, you know, I thought beyond that there were legal issues that were troubling, and I didn't want to send a message by continuing in that office that everything was just fine, because I didn't think uh, it was fine. And one of the senators asked me, Mr. Weld, how could you possibly have done this thing? Ed Meese brought you to Washington. And if nothing else, I would think the demands, the strictures of loyalty would prevent you from even considering such a move. And I said what I always say, uh, Senator, I think that too often, particularly in this town, referring to Washington, D.C., loyalty is simply an excuse for doing the wrong thing. Well, you could have heard a pin drop in the hearing room, and it was a cavernous room. No one in Washington wanted to hear that. The uh, interesting, uh, given that it was, uh, as you pointed out, President Trump's request of Comey that he give him loyalty, that was your sort of exhibit A. It it sounded more like an order than a request to me. (laughs) Right. By the Uh, way, one of your colleagues as U.S. attorney, when you were serving in Massachusetts, he was the uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, was Rudy Giuliani. Oh, Rudy taught me a lot. He and and I did all the mob cases together. (laughs) So Giuliani has been one of the president's most aggressive uh, He's his lawyer. He's his lawyer. A lot of it is on, yeah, he's his lawyer. He's on cable TV. He's gotten a lot of criticism for how he's handled this particular representation. What do you think of how Rudy Giuliani has done going from being the, you know, mob-busting U.S. attorney back in the days uh, when you guys were working together and, and how he's handled himself with Donald Trump today? You know, I have such a long and close relationship with uh, Rudy. It's hard for me to be objective. Uh, I campaigned for him as mayor. He campaigned for me as governor. But beyond that, in the Justice Department, when we were fellow U.S. attorneys, we were the Bobsy twins. I mean, I had 109 convictions and 111 public corruption prosecutions. Rudy and I actually worked together developing the PC, the probable cause for the wiretap that would lead to making the commission case, uh, the existence of the commission with the, the heads of the five organized crime families getting together. Until then, it had always been the received idea in Washington that the existence of the commission was a myth. Yeah. J. Edgar Hoover always said it was a myth. Well, it wasn't a myth at all. Yeah, they would right. get together with Meyer Lansky in Miami and decide what was going to be done. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Rudy and I both read Joe Bonanno's autobiography called A Man of Honor. And there were some things in there that set us to thinking. And he all but adverts to the existence of the of the commission. And one thing led to another, and a little bit of uh, wiretap evidence leads to something else. And next thing you know, Rudy brought the commission case and brought the whole house crumbling down. I just have to say as an aside, because it's one of my favorite books, I actually read that book, but also Gay Talese's book about Joe Bonanno, I think it was called Honor Thy Father, is a brilliant book. He lived with Joe Bananas, as they called him, for like a year. It was the Sopranos before the Sopranos existed. So you and you and Rudy were the Bobsy twins. You were you were tight. I mean, do you guys still talk? Uh, yeah, I, I kept up with Rudy. I went to his wedding uh, to Judith. So when you, so if you become president, <laughs> you're going to appoint him attorney general. Well, you know, two people that I've had long and close relationships with are. Rudy Giuliani and uh, Newt Gingrich. We did a lot of business together. When Newt uh, got in in 95, he had uh, three Republican governors, myself and John Engler of Michigan, Tommy Thompson of Wisconsin, come down to talk to his troops and say, look, 
we took tough stands uh, in our first term. We cut taxes and we cut spending and we did real small government conservative stuff. And in our states, which were basically blue states, we were hung in effigy for two and a half years. And then we were reelected with over 70 percent of the vote. So you, too, can take tough votes. And, and Newt wanted his members to hear that. So have you talked to Rudy since you announced your exploratory campaign? Oh, no, no. And... I just, I, uh, no. you know, when we've been thrown together and we, we used to well, see each other out in uh, right. East Hampton, Long Island, at, uh, yeah. socially right. in recent years. Other than that, it hasn't been a professional yeah. You know, look, his position on Trump is that the president has every right to uh, hire and fire whoever he wants in the executive branch, including in law enforcement, the Justice Department and the FBI. And so therefore, accusing Using him of abuse of power for firing the FBI director for whatever purpose he wanted is fine. Well, I think that's too absolutist a position. I think if you can prove motivation, you're entitled to. And the motivation here would be to shut down the Russia investigation. That's Well, I mean, I'm not saying that's the case, but motivation can be proved by extrinsic evidence. A lot of people, lay people, think, oh, you can't prove anything against me unless you got it in writing. That's not true. Circumstantial evidence is often more damning. Uh, than uh, than direct evidence. So in your years as U.S. attorney and as head of the criminal division, did the name Donald Trump ever come across your radar? No. 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 I, I knew him in the decade of the aughts when my wife and I lived in New York a little bit. Oh, really? Uh, how so? What was uh, the, just, you know, uh, socially, uh, cocktail parties. Oh, yeah? I know That's how I know he and I are not the same height, for example. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he claimed, according to his latest, the White House latest medical report, that he's six foot three. How tall are you? Six three, and yeah. we're not the same height. <laughs> You're taller. <laughs> That's correct. Okay. So one question that we yeah. ask uh, all the smart lawyers and former Justice Department officials who come on our show is a legal question: Can a sitting president be indicted? Now, I guess it can be a legal question. It can be a policy question. What is your view? If of you that? look in Article One, Section Three of the Constitution, it says that. Uh, the punishment on impeachment and conviction is nothing more than removal from office and inability to hold any office of trust and honor under the laws of the United States thereafter forever, a lifetime ban. And it goes on to say, but the president shall remain, or whoever, what any civil officer of the United States, including the president, shall remain liable to indictment, conviction, and punishment in the ordinary course. Now, I draw a couple of conclusions from that. One, obviously, that means after he leaves office, he can be indicted, convicted, and punished. Two, it must mean that the president could be subject to some form of charge, an indictment, a sealed indictment, or an indictment that then stayed by order of the court while he is president. What I think is not good policy is the idea that the president can be hauled into criminal court to answer for a garden variety criminal case while he's president, because we have to run a world out there. And if you take the president off the field of battle onto the sidelines of a criminal court while he's in office, you can't run a world that way. Well, don't you take him off the field of battle if you initiate impeachment proceedings? You do. No, not if you initiate them, only if you convict him with a two-thirds vote. Well, no, no, you're saying saying going through an impeachment trial is a distraction. Is le- you think that's less of a distraction than a than the criminal process? I, I, I do. And the criminal process in the Article Three Judicial Court is really a full time operation. Yeah. 
Take my word for it. Yeah. So of the various crimes Donald Trump has been accused of, the one that seems the most serious because it's been sort of endorsed by the Southern District in Manhattan are the campaign finance violations, the payments of hush money. And we have sort of new details on that showing those checks that were personally written by the president while in office to Michael Cohen reimbursing him for the hush money to Stormy Daniels. Is that, in your view, a prosecutable crime, and is it an impeachable crime? Well, I I don't think of the most serious offenses as being campaign finance. I think of them as being obstruction of justice and undermining the rule of law. And, uh, you know, technically, if there are false statements made in connection with a mailing of any kind or even a telephone call, that's... Mm -hmm. uh, Mail fraud and wire fraud, uh, those are predicate offenses for the racketeering animal that uh, came in and was used so often by Rudy Giuliani and myself. And uh, there are many theories you could pursue. I'm somewhat taken by what I call Danglegate, which is uh, the dangling of pardons in front of people who used to work for you and seem to have turned against you, and now you want them to either shut up or go pretend to work with uh, the prosecutors and get information that way. Just uh, in theory, if a president were to dangle a pardon, which is an official act in front of someone uh, in order to induce them to go pretend to cooperate with the prosecution, but then report back to the president, why then the president would be receiving a thing of value in return for an official act. That's not obstruction of justice, but it is bribery Bribery. under 18 U.S.C. 212. Well, that depends on the nature of the dangle, right? I mean, how was it communicated and by whom? And I dare say if this stuff all moves forward, we're going to hear a lot of I was just kidding from the president. But, (laughs) you know, I think the 2016 campaign waged by the the president was a series of uh, dog whistles uh, to people whom he hoped would be supporting him. And, uh, you know, the fact that uh, only dogs can hear it doesn't mean you didn't whistle it. All right. Let's talk politics for now. Yeah, we got it. Yeah. You've announced this exploratory bid. Uh, How's it going? You getting any traction? Are you getting any money? Everybody says, you know, good on you. This is great. Somebody's got to do it. It's a disgrace to the country that other people haven't or that no one's pointing out the emperor uh, doesn't have new clothes on. But are you doing it? to win and become president, or are you doing it to hurt Donald Trump's chances of getting reelected? I think the only reason to do something like this is to do it with the purpose in mind of winning. And those who know me well would tell you that I've thought for well over a decade now that I could start Monday as president of the United States just by virtue of the experience that I've had, both uh, two-term governor and uh, having worked in both the House and the Senate and been head of the criminal division of the Justice Department. You know, and I'm no spring chicken. I'm 10 months older than the president. But uh, there's an upside to that in a way. You you do get wiser as you get older. And I've seen a lot. There are a number that, of septuagenarians in the race uh, at the moment, right? Or, th- there are. One, there are. One just announced and seems to be getting a lot of traction. But look, Politico just had a piece saying, uh, you know, you had your exploratory bid last month. Then, they write, you went dark. Aside from a few television hits and public appearances, the former Massachusetts governor has done little to suggest his primary election challenge to Trump is something the president needs to worry about. Well, first of all, I'm going to make this decision on my timetable, not somebody else's timetable. I have been in uh, New Hampshire every week since my February 15th speech in Bedford, uh, New Hampshire. 
and doing town halls and uh, getting a good reaction there. Uh, but uh, beyond that, the stuff I've been doing outside New Hampshire has uh, received unanimous uh, encouragement. But let me, let me mm-hmm. ask you this, Governor. The last time you ran, that was 2016, you ran as a libertarian. Right. This time you're running as a Republican, but you s- seem to be fundamentally out of step with the current Republican Party and electorate. I mean, you're, you're pro-choice, you're pro-LGBT, you're, you believe in climate change, uh, you think you're pretty liberal on immigration, correct me if I'm wrong. Why do you think that with those policies uh, that you're going to be able to bring well, uh, I the think, Republican I Party think, along with I you? think those are the right policies. And I would say I'm totally the same person I was when I ran as a libertarian three years ago. It's not you. Ago. You haven't changed. Uh, well, the that's, Republican that's, Party has changed. That's my point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, <clears> when, the, when the Whig Party broke into two in the 1850s on the issue of slavery— the southern half became the know-nothing party because they would say, I know nothing when asked about their secret meetings. And they were characterized by violent anti-immigrant fervor. They hated Catholics. They hated the immigrants coming in from Germany and Italy and also violent rallies and also devotion to conspiracy theories. Well, that sounds awfully familiar to me. That's the Trump campaign of 2016. Now, the other wing of the party, uh, the anti-slavery northern wing, went over and got together with John C. Fremont's Free Soil Party and elected Abraham Lincoln as president of the United States four years later. So I'm rejoining not the Know Nothing Party. I'm rejoining what I hope will be the party of Lincoln. And that's the whole point. Okay. So where is that going at this point? Do you have endorsements? Are you getting any... How much money have you raised? Well, you can't raise money when you're in the... Well, you're uh, rep for your exploratory committee. You can. You, you, I don't think you can ask people to, to uh, raise money for a super PAC or a campaign. I haven't needed to raise money for the exploratory committee. Is, are you self-financing I the did. campaign? Yes. Right. How much money are you putting in? Mm. Tell you later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, presumably you're your wife for know? transparency, <laughs> but uh, anyway. But endorsements. I mean, I you know you are running well, no, as I've, a Republican. I've, yeah. No, I, and, I could I could be asking all my old friends and, and former yeah. governors and former senators and even mm-hmm. some current ones. Endorse me, endorse me, endorse me. I need to get momentum. No, I'm not going to do that. Well, I, well, I don't want to do. Well, I don't <laughs> ask people to do something that may not be in their immediate interest. I'd rather go out and prove that uh, I've got something going and that uh, the uh, message that uh, we need to have someone standing as a Republican who's not acting the way the current occupant of the White House is, I think that's a powerful message. Nobody would say to Tom Paine, well, we're not going to pay attention to you uh, unless you, you know, issue 160 more broadsides. It was, uh, you know, where he stood in the political scheme of things. And, And I think that's important. But you need you need a finely honed message, and I guess I'm not really hearing what that is, other than the president's of schoolyard bully and um, uh, too unstable. But I mean, can you, you know, is there a three point weld program at this point, or a message sure. you have for voters? Sure. What is it? Cut spending. You know, worry about the debt. Uh, we're putting all that twenty two trillion dollars of debt on. Our children and grandchildren. Were you it's, against it's the tax violent... cut? No, no. I was for the tax cut. I'm a Isn't that side. what's fueled the deficit, no, the, no, the no. tax cut? No, no, no. It's been – twenty to get to $22 trillion and to have uh, you know a trillion dollars every year and the president only now considering his first veto means he didn't veto one cent 
of mm-hmm. that uh, that trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. And I did uh, cut spending in real dollars year over year when I was governor, and I was voted uh, most fiscally conservative governor in the United States. And that was as the new governor of Massachusetts mm-hmm. uh, by the Wall Street Journal and uh, Cato Institute. We also cut taxes 21 times. I'm not sure I've ever met a tax cut I didn't like. So t- cutting taxes and cutting spending. And now there's some Huge issues like uh, climate change, which the president says is a hoax, so he won't have to do anything about it. We're going to have uh, the polar ice cap melt if we don't do anything about that. And everyone's coastline is going to be rearranged, so there's going to be a lot of shorefront property that's not shorefront property. What now. do you want to do about climate change? Rejoin the Paris Accords and have the United States adopt 2050 uh, targets that are consonant with those of other, other countries. What do you uh, think of the Green New Deal? You know, that... As currently sketched, it looks too expensive, but uh, I've been an environmentalist my whole life, and I don't care who knows it, so I would, I would be in that one uh, up, up to my elbows. Uh, I also think internationally, you know, the president's shown very bad judgment, and this is by way of telling you what I would do, not just that he's a bad guy, but mm-hmm. uh, I thought that uh, not joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a terrible blunder. And the president's stated reason for being against it in the 2016 campaign, when he first came out against it, was that it would be dominated by China. He hadn't taken the trouble to find out that China was not a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and that the whole argument for it was to establish a powerful beachhead in Asia with Asian countries without China being at the table. What about uh, Russia? Just to get back to the one of the major themes of this podcast, what do you make of... Trump's cozying up to Putin, the Helsinki uh, Helsinki where he press accepted where Putin's he word that they didn't interfere in the uh, election over the findings of the U.S. intelligence and yeah. law enforcement community. What, what, what do you make of all that? Why do you think he's he you know this? what Andrew McCabe said is probably true. He may or may not be a Russian asset, but he might as well be. And uh, his devotion to Putin is part of a pattern of uh, praising and emulating dictators and autocrats around the world. It's not just Mr. Putin, who may or may not have a hold over our president, but uh, it's uh, President Kim of South Korea. And the Mm -hmm. president early on said, what a strong kid, what a tough kid. Imagine he offed his own uncle and he even iced his brother. That's, that's a strong kid. And he expressed great admiration for President Duterte of the Philippines, who actually holds the gun while he shoots people suspected of uh, narcotics. Uh, so and, admired- and you don't find these uh, good role models? For no, I don't. I don't. So, and I think uh, yeah. uh, Viktor Orban, Orban in, uh, yeah. in Hungary, Hungary is trying to move them out of the Western Bloc towards the Soviet Block, just as yeah. uh, Paul Manafort maneuvered yeah. to have the president of Ukraine do. So he, uh, he admires, he seems to admire dictators, but have you seen... And, and our enemies. And our and enemies. Our enemies. Yeah. And when he met with uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, and Ambassador Kislyak in the Oval Office, he kicked out all the American press and had the meeting monitored only by TASS, which is the Russian state press Organ, what's that about? Yeah. That's crazy. At yeah. some level, do you think he's a traitor? That's a pretty strong word. <laughs> <laughs> you need you need two witnesses to an overt act yeah. to uh, to prove that. It is a legal but, term. But he he is Disloyal? does seem to have been going uh, against the direct interests of the United States, but saying NATO is a complete mess. We don't like NATO. Well, NATO is our alliance. It's not the Russia's alliance. Russia would like nothing better than to see NATO sink into the sea. And that's the direction that Mr. Trump, at least 
initially took with respect right, to NATO. Right, right. Well, of course, what he would say is that... You, you know, say, I was just kidding and I backed off a little <laughs> no, bit. Well, I think he was saying that NATO members need to be paying more of their fair share for our common defense, no, which that's, is... That's okay, but yeah. I believe he went on to say NATO's a joke, uh, this yeah. is not a good purpose, we should be going right. in the other direction. Right. All right, let's get back to politics uh, for for a moment because you are running as a Republican, even though you were a libertarian two years ago or two and a half years ago when you ran. You know, some people have speculated you're a stalking horse for Mitt Romney or Larry Hogan or somebody else getting in the race. No, I'm I'm not a stalking horse, and uh, you know I don't care what anybody says about me. Once you've been head of the criminal division, the Justice Department, right. you really don't care what anyone says about you. <laughs> right. All Would right. you like to see, uh, say, John Kasich or Larry Hogan or Mitt Romney? Would you like to see them get into the race and also challenge? Trump? I, I wouldn't mind. Uh, it's no secret that I'm quite close with Governor Kasich, and. and uh, a lot of people thought he was going to get in, and well, he, he seems to have taken another route to be a CNN contributor. Yeah. Well, I, I just – I don't know. But I, mm-hmm. I do think uh, he knows a lot about the budget. He knows a lot about uh, armed services and uh, military matters. So I don't think it would hurt the country. I'm far from saying I'm bestriding the earth like a colossus <laughs> and I have this ground and no one else come near. No, no. I got things that I want to do. In office, and and they are the opposite of things that the current incumbent of the uh, the presidency is doing and has done, and and I have a different way of approaching things, and that's enough for me. What are some of the first things that you would do in office? Sometimes presidents want to take actions that are symbolic. Oh, uh, oh, I I agree with that, and and I'd go one step further. I think if you, I think you should have a short priority list uh, for an office like this, and if you don't get done at least a majority of the things you want to do in your first six months in office, then you've been a failure because you've squandered the uh, immense amount of political capital that you have by definition from having won that particular uh, office. I, I would I would rejoin the uh, Paris Accords uh, very quickly. I would uh, uh, apply to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, very quickly. I would, uh, you know, let it be known that my foreign policy consisted of more than tariffs and sanctions, which are what, you know, President Trump says, I'm a tariff guy, first and always. Well, I'm not a tariff guy, first and always. Mm -hmm. And you can prove that free trade has always been good for the United States because we have the most, the greatest productivity per worker of any country in the world, including China, by a mile. There's no one even close to us. So we're always going to get the high-wage jobs as a result of unfettered free trade. But look, everything you're saying about President Trump has been well-known to Republican voters since they elected him and his entire time in office. So I come back to my first question, referencing your Stockholm Syndrome comment. How do you persuade your fellow Republicans to bolt from this president when your entire critique is something that they know all too well? Well, you got uh, you got to meet the voters one at a time, I suppose, at the end of the day. the way You certainly have to meet them one at a time in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, there are 20 states where unenrolled voters, uh, independents, can take a uh, Republican ballot uh, in the primary. They're, they happen to be concentrated uh, in the early part of the voting. You know, New Hampshire is not the only state in the country. I would expect to uh, make a good showing in the, uh, the left coast, so to speak, uh, <laughs> California, or- Oregon, Washington. Right. Uh, 
So the, you, so the weld strategy here is you do well in New Hampshire and then you, you know, you get the momentum and where's next? Well, it's true. If you do well in New Hampshire, you do yeah. get momentum. But I certainly uh, am not a stranger in any of the six New England states, uh, nor in California, uh, nor in the mid-Atlantic states. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd go uh, to those places, the Intermountain West, uh, which I got to know in the last campaign quite a lot. And then, you know, the toughest nuts would be the Rust Belt. Uh, And I do give the president political credit for having seen that his only path to victory lay through the Rust Belt. He said that as early as April Mm -hmm. of the election year. No one took it seriously because they didn't think he had a shot. But the tide has turned against the Republicans in those states. So who knows how solid they are now. But I'm talking about Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan. Let me Um, ask a couple of uh, policy questions, one domestic, the other foreign. Healthcare has dominated our politics for a couple of decades now, including this last midterm election. Would you repeal Obamacare or do you support Obamacare? Well, how about how about neither of the above? Is that, is that okay? <laughs> you know, I do think we're Medicare wasting, for all. We're, no, no, okay. we're 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 all really right. wasting a lot of time in Washington by spending so much time in Congress on let's repeal it, let's reaffirm it. We do not have a consensus in Congress about the Affordable Care Act, so I don't see that there's a lot of blood that should be shed over that right now. There are things that can be done. Prescription drugs are entirely too expensive now, so let people buy them across state lines and uh, and buy them in other countries uh, abroad. If they want to buy them from Canada, let them buy them from Canada. Don't tell them we're the nanny state. We're going to tell you that Canada's drugs are no damn good if, if people do want to buy them. Uh, let people have health savings accounts. I mean, I'm in favor across the board, not just healthcare, of putting as much power as possible in the hands of the individual. So let individuals have health savings accounts and they can sock away money to provide for the kind of health care that they want. They may not want the Cadillac that the Affordable Care Act gives them. And, and the right. one demerit of the Affordable Care Act is it virtually insists that everyone's got to have the Cadillac. Well, you know, maybe a lot of people would rather have a Chevrolet, and that should be up to them. And it's nanny statism to tell people they can't have the Chevrolet. I feel a little bit the same way about uh, Social Security. Let people have individual retirement accounts so they can salt away money uh, against uh, their golden years uh, to the extent they want to do so. So people hearing you say that will say, well, wants to abolish Social Security. No. I I want, uh, in addition to Social Security, have people be able to put away in a tax-advantaged manner uh, funds against their retirement. Right now, it's the government's got to do it. And the government's got to do it never sounds good to me. By the way, uh, and then I'm going to get to the foreign policy question, but do you think, as Donald Trump said at the CPAC conference and a lot of Republicans have been saying that the Democratic Party is moving towards socialism? Well, some of the recent proposals uh, are avowedly socialistic. You know, I don't think that's a good thing. I hope the Dems can come up with centrist candidates mm-hmm. for the 2020 and- election. Maintaining your libertarian roots, I noted that you have joined the advisory board of a company, Acreage Holdings, which is uh, cultivates, processes, and dispenses cannabis in 11 states. I've thought that since 1991. I said in 1991, my first year in office, hey, yeah. they say that marijuana is good for glaucoma yeah. and yeah. nausea from chemotherapy. Why not let people use it for those two things? Right. Well, that, that's medical. What about full-scale legalization? 
I think it should be a state's rights issue, state by state. You know, things have changed since 1991. I was way out there by myself on that and on uh, gay and lesbian rights and that sort of thing. Uh, And nobody else was around for 15 years or so. But now the American people, you know, state by state, blue states and red states have decided, and I think the figure is something like 94% are in favor of medicinal marijuana, and 64% in favor of a full adult legal So, right. you're, so you mean in favor of uh, allowing states to pass laws allowing well, recre- are. Right, are recreational. Laws. Yeah, but the, the federal government is but, still but a, a federal former, law. Right. Okay. And w- uh, this Justice you, Department says it's going to prosecute well, that's those what, cases, That's right? what Barr said. But do you No, want... he said he's not going to prosecute if, if it's legal in that state. He did not have – A.G. Barr does not have the same position that A.G. Sessions has. But Sessions would President right. Weld push for repeal of the federal law? Day one. Day one. De- Day one. Descheduling? Right. Descheduling, full-scale legalization. No, that's not the What's same the thing. It takes it off the uh, the uh, schedule. The DEA of, right. list. DEA yeah. and National yeah. Institute of Drug Abuse. Well, uh, but if list. a state wants to pass recreational drug well, you know, marijuana, right, but no. that's fine with you. But what's the difference between the scale legalization and what you're the, saying? The sword in the bed is the fact that uh, cannabis is listed by the FDA as a Schedule One narcotic, right. which means it has absolutely no medicinal value, right. which is a complete lie. The FDA has even liked licensed an anti-childhood epilepsy drug for, um, it's called Epidiolex, and they said this is good, and their excuse for doing it in the face of uh, Schedule 1 is, oh, they're manufactured in Great Britain. More recently, it's been illegal to study marijuana or cannabis in this country. I get that, but... Okay, okay. so recently, Mm -hmm. the federal government has said, well, actually, uh, you can study uh, in California, you can do this, but you got to import the marijuana from Canada. I mean, what... Those two things show the hypocrisy of the technical position of the federal government. And candidate Trump in 2016, I think this story may have a happy ending because there's a lot of oomph behind the States Act Mm -hmm. that Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts are behind. And uh, the House is all for that. And that's off to a good start in the Senate. And, uh, you know, most observers of the industry think that that will become law by the third quarter of this year. End of problem. Just to be clear, you want to get rid of the scheduling of marijuana as a dangerous drug. And okay, but how is that different than just lifting all restrictions on smoking or partaking you, marijuana. You, you can't completely. have federal, legalization, full-scale you can't legalization. Have full legalization as long as that Schedule 1 is there. Right, but it's you remove that. And, so so yeah. you remove that, and my position is not let's have full-scale federal legalization. It's let, let the states, let's let the states do what they want. If Alabama wants to never have adult legal rec, and I suspect that might be the case, we shouldn't be telling them that they should do so. And that's the position that Donald Trump took during the campaign, and I agree with it. And so does my colleague on that board, John Boehner, who used to be implacably opposed (laughs) to the legalization. We're going to wrap up in a second, but I did have one foreign policy question for you, which is we still have many thousands of of Americans in harm's way, including more than 10,000 American troops in Afghanistan. What would you do about Afghanistan? Would you pull out the troops? I would. I would. I think uh, the president got it right the first time. We've been there a long time. What is it, 17, 18 years? And I've heard from intelligence folks the story of when uh, we were first going into Afghanistan, the president had a senior CIA person call up his Russian counterpart 
and say, we're thinking of going to Afghanistan. We don't want to start World War III over this because we know it's right on your border. So tell us how upset you would be. The guy died laughing. The Russian guy just died laughing. He said, uh, I want to encourage you to go in there with as big a force as you can and enjoy all the success that the British enjoyed in Afghanistan and that the Soviet Union enjoyed in <laughs> Afghanistan and have a nice day. Right. Right. All right. right. All well, right. Governor Bill Weld, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery and good luck and uh, be happy on the campaign trail. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Thanks to presidential hopeful Bill Weld for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at SkullduggeryPod. And now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.